Welcome to the Fast Track of Innovation, the data-driven podcast. Here, data isn't just numbers, it's your superpower. Sparking stories of success from bites to breakthroughs. Dive deep into insights from the Data-Driven Conference, where data heroes assemble. Ready to supercharge your data journey? Strap in, it's time to get data-driven. Sponsored by Reltio. Reltio's AI-powered data unification and management cloud capabilities encompasses entity resolution, multi-domain SaaS, master data management, or MDM, and 360 data products. Reltio helps enterprises transform poor quality data from disparate sources into unified, trusted, and interoperable Welcome to another data-driven podcast. My name is Chris Detzel, and today we have Anch Kanwar back. He's the Senior VP of Technology at Reltio. Anch, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Chris? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, it's already here. It's crazy. And we have our special guest, Asha Saxana. And Asha is a strategic, innovative leader with a proven track record of building successful tech businesses for over 28 years. Asha, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Happy New Year to you, too. And Happy New Year. Glad to have you. And I'm going to give the reins over to Anch. Anch, go ahead. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Asha, I'm, I'm reading over your bio here, and I have to share it because you've done so many amazing things over the years. As Chris said, you've been the CEO at Aculus, which is a healthcare data analytics firm that you founded. You have been the CEO of Future Technologies, which was an international data management solution. Now you're currently the founder and CEO of Women Leaders in Data and AI, which is an organization that brings senior leaders together to, to create this impactful digital world with parity and equity. And we'll spend hopefully some quality time talking about that uh, initiative. You're also the CEO of Coaching International, which is a leading coaching firm for growth-focused CEOs and entrepreneurs. You're board advisor and adjunct professor at Columbia University. On top of everything else, you're a published author and a columnist at Entrepreneur uh, Magazine. You're a well-known keynote speaker. That's, in fact, how we met at one of the conferences. And you talked about entrepreneurship, leadership, women in data, artificial intelligence, big data. And you have a book that just came out that we're going to talk about. Wow, that is an amazing few years of work, I would imagine, Asha. Very happy to have you here and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, I had, I've had a great journey and I always say that this time, I don't think we've ever seen this kind of a hype in technology that AI has brought into our lives. So I'm really excited about what's in store for us in 2024 and how companies are going to embrace it. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to get your take on it. But before we go there, we'd love to get to know you, Asha, the person, uh, Asha, the entrepreneur, uh, a little bit better. So would you mind starting us off uh, with your journey and really how did you get into tech? How did you get into AI and specifically into data? Very typical, I would say that being an Indian origin, uh, my parents, of course, expected me to be the, an engineer or a doctor. And I a very straightforward path of being an engineer. Um, and I graduated as a computer science engineer. My very first job in New York City was a, be a programmer. I was a mainframe programmer. Um, worked on a DB2, uh, started my career as a database engineer and been with data analytics and AI from very beginning. 
I started my career as a programmer, but very quickly climbed the ladder to be an engagement manager, worked for a consulting firm, and then started my own consulting company very early. Uh, and I always say that having a mentor, I had a mentor in my job, my first boss who truly inspired me to do more. But I also say that it's never just one thing when you're climbing the ladder. It's multiple elements that influence your career. Of course, I had to work hard. I had to be good at what I did. I had to build a relationship with my client and make sure that I had a brand and was recognized for what I did. And then somebody pushing you a little bit further helps you go to the next level. And started my first company at a very young age, early 20s. And I grew, I redoubled every year, grew to about 350 engineers. Then I built a, actually partnered with a large manufacturing company, took 3,000 dealers online, and then built a healthcare software company where we sold the software to Hackensack University Medical Center, Frederick Memorial, and so on. And I've been teaching at Columbia University as an adjunct professor for 13 years now. Started at Columbia Business School where I was uh, entrepreneur in residence. Uh, and then I started teaching at Columbia Business School and then moved on to Columbia Medical School of Public Health where I teach entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and so that's been my journey, I think, an entrepreneur, a technologist, and an educator. And I think being an educator, you somehow start sharing your knowledge with the world. And the book came out of that. The book came out of getting in the habit of teaching and saying, I teach and I execute in an organization as a business. Right. How can I package it and put it out? And I think the COVID time was a really pivotal time where I think a lot of people got a chance to pause and reflect. Mm-hmm. And that's when I reflected and gave birth to two, two children. One was my book and the other was Women Leaders in Data and AI, which was a mission-based organization. So both after reflecting on life. And- That's an amazing outcome of, of the isolation of, of that year or so. Um, would you, since you mentioned Wilda, let, let's, we'd love to know a little bit more. I have heard you very passionately talk about the mission and the the mission of the company and, and all the change that you wish to bring about through that as a vehicle. But we'd love to have our listeners also hear that from you directly and then perhaps get an update on where you, are, you, you have been making a difference over the last year or so. You know, when you talk about just talking about COVID and pausing and reflecting, I think the, the, in spirituality, they say pause and reflect, right? The whole meditation is about meditate to be able to reflect. To me, COVID was that time when a lot of my friends, those one were passing away, my landscaper passed away. And the question was, and I was having uh, a conversation with my older son, and we were talking about what are we going to leave behind? If the life comes to an end, what did we leave behind? And so my immediate thing was, which I was working on a book, but I was not rushing to write a book. I was just putting things together. And at that time, it was like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to finish my book. And as I was writing the book, it was the realization that, oh my God, as you think about the data, during COVID, everybody was on digital. We were all, all creating more data than we ever expected to create. And the models were going to get stronger. And everybody who was in machine learning, work, they were doing the work, they knew that these models are going to get stronger during the COVID time that's going to help accelerate our progress during this time. And my immediate concern was that, oh my God, these models are going to 
enhance the biases that we're going to code into this model. And what are we going to do about it? Uh, and during my conversation with my son, I was talking to him about that. I said, I'm writing this book. I realized that how important responsible ethical AI is going to be. But also I, re I realized that my voice would not be heard. Uh, women don't write a lot of AI books. Women are not on the, a lot of the women are not on the senior roles. How do we make sure that these women or minorities have a say becomes a really important issue. And I, I was having this conversation and I said, there's nothing we can do. This is a, it's an issue. What can we do about it? And my son looked at me and said, why don't you do something about it? And I said, what can I do? I'm just, I know how to build companies and I know how to build a product. This is a social issue. I can't solve a social issue. And he looked at me and said, mom, if not you, then who? And I pondered on it. I ignored him. I tried not answering him and I walked away. But what I then uh, called a few of my friends who were in the C-suite leadership role. And I knocked on a few others and I said, let's come together as women leaders in data and AI and do something about it. And as I started, I realized that it's not just a woman's issue. We need male leaders. I need our allies walking with us. And I ended up talking to Seth Dobrin, who was the chief AI officer of IBM at that point, Michael Kingston, who was the CIO of L'Oreal. And I, as I started talking with these guys, and I was like, oh my God, they care about this too. And we say world leaders coming together for women leaders in data and AI. It's really truly the world leaders who are coming together for this cause. So we have about 30% men and 70% women in our organization who care passionately about making sure that as we execute technology, within Science, when you think about science, it's always pro and con, right? When you talk about AI, they're going to be good and bad. But all we can do as leaders in this industry to do the right thing. And if I take one step, you take one step, together we'll hopefully create, a, create the magic. So that's really the mission behind women leaders in data and AI is to bring the consciousness of leaders who are impacting. So the, we started with the C-suite leaders who have 10,000 employees or more. So they can create the impact. It's me, mine, and ours. You start mm -hmm. with you, create an impact with mine, and then create the impact of ours. And hopefully you create a change. That's amazing. That, that's really amazing and inspiring. What are some of the activities or actions through which Wilda sort of engages with the world? Get involved. Yeah. So you could be a Wilda leader. If you're a uh, senior VP or a C-suite leader, you become a member and you get engaged in your own. Uh, circle. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer community. Mm -hmm. And then we build a nation, which is anyone who's below a director level, they are build mm -hmm. a nation. Mm -hmm. So we have two categories of build the leaders and build a nation. But usually what happens is a corporation comes in as a member and then they buy the spots for leaders and nation. And through that membership, we have mm -hmm. events, in-person events and um, virtual events where we talk about tech talks. We want to make sure that our audience is up to date on what's going on in the world of AI. Mm -hmm. We have in-person events where we have thought leadership summits, a uh, very intimate setting, a hundred people or less of senior leaders. So we partner with, we are partnering with Chevron, Build-A-Bear, Mars, IPG Media, and so on, uh, where we go regionally around the U.S. and in Europe, where we uh, bring about close to 100 C-suite leaders to have these thought-provoking discussion and challenge each other and learn from each other and create this peer-to-peer -peer community. 
And then we do awards. We want, we talk about recognition. We want to make sure every November we have award gala where we give award, awards to women, male allies, and the corporations who are creating some kind of a change and shift. You, if you, it's so important to be able to recognize good behavior. Hopefully you can create the repetition of that good behavior. And we do our summit and gala, annual summit and gala in New York City. And then our regional summits are in Chevron at Houston, L'Oreal in LA, IPG in London, Bilderberg in Twin City, and so on. Yeah, that's really amazing. And for everybody listening, the website is wlda.tech. Please go take a look at all the amazing work that WLDA is doing right now. Also, entrepreneurship, Asha, is something that, that you are known for starting companies, for teaching about it, and so on. And some of our listeners, they're very interested in the inspiration, the seed behind starting the, the two different, very different companies that, that you started. Can you walk us through your inspiration at that time and how hopefully others can hear it and spark their own entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. So as I said that, when I jumped from being an engineer to an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. three things. The first was you have to be good at what you do. Your core hard skills have to be good. So that was one. Second was your EQ, your soft skill, your leadership skills, relationship, understanding the consumer, whoever your consumer is, understanding how to connect the dots of your hard skills and the soft skills. So number two was my brand, what I built as I was delivering on my, my hard skills. And, and number three is to do something about it. A lot of time you have the hard skills, you have the soft skills and oh, when the right time comes, I'll make them or I don't think I'm ready. So you wait. Right. Uh, so I think for me, first of all, I started my first company when I was 24. So I think uh, youth or ignorance is a bliss when you don't know what you're jumping into. So sure. you just jump and you say, oh my God, what did I do? But listen, I still do startups and I still build companies. And I think it's really the thrill of trying to figure out if I can make it. You jump in the ocean and you say, can I swim? And I think that's really what an entrepreneur needs is to have that dire passion that doesn't matter if it's going to work or not. I'm going to keep swimming. So those three skills are really critical to be an entrepreneur. I started my first company. It was the right time at the right place. I was working for Merrill Lynch. My existing consulting firm was getting bought out. My boss basically gave me my non-compete bag because they wanted to keep Merrill Lynch happy. And I, so I started my first company with a client in hand, which was very rare. It's the right time at the right place. But I also think if I was not an excellent performer, they wouldn't have done that. If I didn't have a brand, they wouldn't have done that. Um, the, the second thing which I think is really important is to stay hungry. So my second company, which I did with a partnership with a manufacturing company, I was hungry. I was always asking questions of what is the opportunity? How can I partner with you? What can I do for you? And the third company was the healthcare software company was through Oracle. We were Oracle partners and Oracle said, Hackensack is looking for someone to manage their database and analytics. We went in and we landed up building a product around it. So I think it's about having the hard skills, having the curiosity or the soft skills, but also having the passion or the gut to be able to jump in and say, I'm going to survive no matter right. what. You know, yeah. that passion to help you survive. So I think those were the three important skills which I feel I needed to continue being on that entrepreneurial journey to keep making and building. You know, they said there's a reward, of course, being an entrepreneur, there's a reward. 
but there's also a lot of struggle. You have a lot of sleepless nights. But if the passion is stronger than your struggle, then you keep moving forward. That is such great advice, Asha, and, and, and just you're, you're living proof of that. Yeah. So let's fast forward a few years now. You're in COVID times. You've decided to write a book about AI and also talk about timing. That was great timing just because the before the big wave of 2023 AI hype cycle really took off. So tell us a little bit about the book. I have some specific areas that I find very exciting that I want to ask you about. Why don't you give us your approach to the book and what you're trying to share through the book? Yeah, being a technologist, a business owner, I built solutions for business community. And what I realized that every time I was talking to a business user, they hated technologists. They're like, they don't get our business. They are making things. We And then if you talk to the technologists or engineers, they can't tolerate the business users because they don't have patience. They don't know how to use it. They keep changing their rent. So there was a constant battle between the business users and the technologists. And I always came as a strategist. And so my position was always to figure out how you build the gap between business and technologists. Um, and so my goal in the book was to really, and as you mentioned in my bio, I was a partner at a CEO coaching international firm where I was working with about 12 to 15 CEOs of large companies on using tech to grow hyper growth, build hyper growth organizations. So I was working clear, directly with the CEO and their direct reports to figure out how to create the growth, the exponential growth in their companies for an exit. So I was working with private companies for an exit. And what I realized that a lot of time, the senior management really didn't spend enough time on technology. And uh, during the COVID time, my whole thought was, oh, my God, they're all going digital. And mm -hmm. how are the CEOs going to uh, jump in and move faster than they can, truly? And so right. I was writing the book. My goal was for, so the first part of my book is all use cases. I talk about Netflix, um, uh, Domino's Pizza, and so on. The companies who really embrace technology and how they have used technologies to create the growth. And the second right. part of the book is the how-to. I talk about four-step process of how to use the data readiness, the four quadrants, and the power, the data performance index, the AI flywheel, and prioritization to be able to create use cases that can give them the high value. It's all about the value. And if you are walking into a meeting, if you don't add value, you're only going to be there for so long. As a senior leader, they, they say CDO term is only 18 months and the CDOs won't survive if they can't add value. So we all come with a term and within that term, if we're not producing the value, we are going to be out. And same thing with technology. How much you remember those days? I still remember those days when we build this technology, it gets shelved. So frustrating because as an engineer, as a creator, you're building the technology and it gets shelved. Even today, in my company, I get frustrated because our technology is not used fully. We only use 20% of the technology, the uh, fee, I, the cost I incur as a business owner for technology. And my team is only using 20% of it. It's super frustrating. Right. So my goal was, how can we make sure that the business user understand technology enough to be able to communicate with technologists? And how can technologists understand business use case, a business language, to be able to communicate the value. I think so I emphasize on the value of technology 
here we are talking about AI and I call it the AI factor. What is the AI factor you need to have? And when you talk about timing, my publisher, I wrote the book in 21 and then got it all cleaned up in 22. We were ready to launch it. My publisher said we'll launch it October 22. I was done printed July and they said we are delayed because of COVID and we can't publish anything until October. And in, and in September, they said, you are now pushed back to February of 23. And they said, sorry, we can't do it. And I was like, I'm in no rush. I wrote it because I wanted to get the book out. I'm in no rush. Whenever you want. November, ChatGPT comes out. January, Microsoft buys, invests in $10 billion in OpenAI. And February, my book comes out. What was the time? You couldn't have asked for something better. And I had named the book before ChatGPT came out, The AI yeah. Factor. It was yeah. just the timing. Yeah, preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, as I said, you know, you have to have the hard skill, you have to have the soft skills, and then you have to have the right timing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I loved about the book, just reading, reading through it. You present very practical frameworks that are very much at that intersection of the business and the tech community. And the, the, the linchpin holding it together is value. So I want to talk through a couple of examples that I found very both easy to use and valuable. First one being the data performance index. Do you want to give us a little bit of a feeling for that? Yeah. So it's all about performance, right? When you talk about data, I have so much data. I ha I meet so many entrepreneurs. They'll say, oh, you do, you work with data and AI. Tell us about, I've got so much data. What do I do with it? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's not about just the raw data yeah. or it's the good data, the bad data. You got the data, but if you don't know what problem you're solving, data is just data. Right. You're not solving the problem. So I talk about the perform the the in the book I talk about the data performance index because it's really important to understand the what the value the data is providing, what is a business value, and having the and measurement. So it's a scientific uh, equation where you said this is my data value, this is my business value, and this is where the power comes from. So I say I talk about the data value indicator multiplies with a business value indicator that gives you the data performance index. And that's what you want to use as you think about what is my viable data projects? What are the projects which will actually give me the value? So it's important to think about it more scientifically instead of just saying that this project right now is the most exciting project or mm -hmm. technologists might say that this is the most interesting technology I want to work on, but really truly what is the business value? And you need to make sure that you have the right data and you have the right business uh, issue to be able to create that performance index. And it feels we need something that is a, a little bit perhaps less quantitative than something like an internal rate of return or something, which comes further down. But if you're just really trying to evaluate a number of options that are in front of you, which being that time of year right now is a good time for planning and so on, it's a tool so to go and pursue that. Um, the other, which is how I actually became aware of your work, Asha, was I was uh, preparing for a talk where the question was, how much should we expect from our AI investments? And my answer was very simple. It's it, it based on how much work you've done with the data and what shape your data is in to be able to extract that value. AI being one of the engines that you can use, it's ultimately advanced statistics in one form or another. And so I needed to communicate this idea of, of data readiness. One, one of the comments that, that I made was around ethics in AI models. And my argument is, 
if you don't have a framework, if you don't have an approach to ethically using data, then it's very hard to have an approach to ethically using AI models because one builds on the other and so on. And the same kind of mindset applies to the, the what expectations you can have in terms of outcomes from AI. It, it really is a reflection of what kind of outcomes you've been able to drive with data and so on, right? Perhaps in a much more amplified, much easier form, but there is a strong correlation there. And I was very happy to see your data readiness framework talk to similar themes and love to hear from you about that as well. A lot of times when you're working with uh, uh, a complex problem, it's always easy to put it into some kind of a framework. When you're working with a complex problem, you break it down into simple pieces, it's more digestible. It's mm -hmm. more, it's easy to communicate and it's easy to understand. And so in data readiness framework, my goal was that you can go in hundred different directions. But truly, there are four basic elements. Do you have a clear objective? Do you have a data management element in it? Do you have the engagement? And do you have the transformation? And when you really think about it, you, to have a clear objective, you need to understand. Do you have the executive buy-in? Do you have the alignment? Do you have the goals? And do you have some kind of operational efficiency? Do you know where you are in the four quadrant? Where do you sit on? And the second, which is a very important, which you just touched upon is what is data management? You know, it's, do you have accessibility to the right data set? Do you have the security? Do you have the quality? Can you trust the data? And do you have the governance? Do you know who owns the data? What are the definitions? If you don't have that basic element, you can't go to engagement. People are not going to buy into it. Engagement is about usage. Are people going to use it and trust it and reuse it? Now you have data sitting in the data lake. You want the data scientist to be able to come and say, all right, I can find some gems here. I can make sense of it. And then comes the literacy. Then you say, okay, now I've got something which is tangible. I can create the literacy. I can create the culture around it. Or I can create the enterprise engagement. Right. And only then you can transform. You right. can't talk about transformation unless you actually hit those three pillars to be able to give something of value. Absolutely. So, and I, th I think the readiness framework also acts as a diagnostic. If, if you're not getting the results that, that you want, then just work backwards, try to figure out which piece is deficient. Exactly. And when you talk about synthetic data, right, you, you can start creating synthetic data, which people don't trust either. You're just creating bad data over bad data. So it's so critical that the investments on data is made appropriately and you create the right buy-in. Otherwise... Clearly, the business and technology is going to constantly keep butting heads. Absolutely. So that brings us to uh, January of 2024, where we're at. We've gone through perhaps the peak of the large language model related hype cycle, but AI is out there. It's in the open. My mother is asking me questions about how AI is going to change the world and so on. So if, as we move forward through the hype, obviously the conversation is going to turn to value. It's going to be, it's going to turn to commercial viability of offering different variations of this technology. Uh, we'd love to hear your point of view on how should companies of the, at this juncture approach AI, approach this whole space. What are the big do's and don'ts from your perspective? First of all, I always say you can't run away from it. You mm -hmm. can't hide under the covers and say, oh, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. It's just a hype. I'm going to stay out of it. I always say to the organizations, you need to jump in. This is something which is gonna is here to stay. It's not something which is happening only today. We've been using mathematical models for such a long time. Sure. And now this is about the language models, the natural language processing. 
this is here to stay. It's going to happen. There is some amazing work which technology, all, all technology company and consulting firms have done in Gen AI, where now you can read the charts and it'll talk to you about the chart. They can have a conversation about your data. Generative AI is here to stay. Now the question is, how you're going to use in your organization? How can you create little clusters to test it maybe? Implement it? But my first thing I always say to the organization is that you can't run away from it. You can't fear it. You can't run away from it. Jump in. What you don't want to do is jump in so much and invest so much into it at one point that you don't have any kind of a hold on it. So you don't want to get engaged so much that there's no measurement. So what I really talk about is building small wins, walking into this huge ocean of generative AI, but taking baby steps. Look at where your data, what kind of data do you have and where can you create use cases where you can start creating small wins. Only if you can create the small wins, you can now take it as a baby step to go to the next level. Jump in, don't be scared, but don't do it all. Start small and then create wins. That's great advice, Asha. Are, th are there any companies or, or any of uh, nonprofits, something that, what's an example of, of doing it right? Well, what's a good example of bringing these innovations to market in, in a sustainable manner that, that sort of goes beyond the hype and, and uh, is likely to stay? So I think we did two examples. The first is uh, Ellen Nielsen, who's with Chevron. She did an officer of Chevron. What she's done is she, they've created a marketplace. So having curated data, have them really investing in data to create good data and have it available as a marketplace where analysts can come in and pick the data and start working on it. Hmm. So I, it's really, as you said earlier, investing in making sure that you have the right data marketplace to make it available for the community of your within your organization. And the second one, Jane Lauder from Estee Lauder was at the keynote speaker for our November summit. And she shared a really great example. She spoke about the AI is such a hype. Everybody's talking about it. Every department wants to do it. So what they did, they, they created an ideathon. And they said, you have an idea about AI? Send us a 30 seconds, a minute video of why your idea is the best idea. And really taking the ideas and then aligning it to their strategic initiatives and see which idea matches with what they need to implement, invest in, and then giving funding to the top three winners of those ideas to, sh then to have them show what will work. I thought those two are really great examples. One is on the data side, the other is on application side. Application. Yeah. And that's again, great advice for just like looking to jumpstart the AI journey or really the other side of it, which is the role of data in companies that may still be struggling in extracting or managing value, which is almost a guarantee that they're going to struggle as they get to the AI piece of it. How should that be approached? So first I'll, I'll say it's a great question because it's a real problem. I was talking to a client earlier and uh, a senior leader said to me that there are too many cooks in the kitchen. Everybody, we don't know who owns the data. And everybody wants to own the data and we are getting no strategy out of data. And this person I was talking with said, maybe I should just build a strategy and jump in. And so this is a real conversation. There are, there are especially with the data organization, if you don't have a centralized owner, or if you don't know who the owner is, 
it can get very confusing because everybody owns data. So having data governance is really critical. And that's why a lot of data governance initiatives fail right. because there are too many cooks in the kitchen. So I think that's number one problem is not having clear definition of who owns the data. Number two is priorities. Mm. Uh, a lot of times you would have so many requests come in that you are busy on the day-to-day -day task or just putting off the fires that you're not focusing on the strategic initiatives. You're getting stuck with day-to-day -day challenges. So really truly having the right leadership to create the priorities so that you don't forget about the strategic goals instead of just becoming the note taker or the order taker, as you say. And I think those are the two biggest challenges organizations face. And these are real problems. And, right. and, and the last one, which I've heard a lot of times, the CDO is complaining, is that we are brought in for value, but we become the infrastructure leaders. All we are doing is just getting the infrastructure ready. So we right. won't have enough time to produce the value. That's right. That's getting to that insight and, and converting that insight into action. It, it still remains elusive despite all of the progress that, that we've had with technology. Asha, that's all we have time for, but I wanted to thank you very much for being with us today and, and sharing uh, your passion and your journey. And I know that uh, listeners of Data Driven would really benefit from your experience. And don't forget, everybody, the website is wlda.tech. Thank you, Asha. Thank you for having me. Great. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another data-driven podcast. I'm Chris Detzel. Don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you, Ash. Thank you, Asha. Thank you, Asha.